quite a large project simply to promote the music of the Austro-Hungarian composer Franz Schmidt. It was not a moment of modernism of breaking from the past. It was really a moment of pushing the past to its extremes. These antennae come up and they play really in a very focused way and they want to get everything perfect and brilliant. You're given a canvas on which to construct something, the job of which is to move people and create emotions in them through the medium of recording. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jake. Uh, I'm great, thank you. What uh, an amazing place we're in. Yeah, um, well, welcome to Nyamus. This is in Hulme, uh, in Manchester. Uh, and it's very dear to us because it's a place that um, is rented by uh, the Hume community who's doing great things. Um, it costs a lot of money to run it. Uh, and obviously with all the heating bills, uh, they're really struggling to make hands meet. Yeah. So we're here to try to support them a little bit and we've make a, made a donation as well. Well, it's really so, extraordinary. So I'm very excited to be here yeah, and with you guys. So can you introduce yourself, Jonathan? Well, I'm Jonathan, Jonathan Berman, and I conduct. So I hold a big white stick in my hand and I wave at people and somehow that makes music. Um, I travel around the world conducting orchestras, operas, And it's the most wonderful life and the most wonderful job. Obviously, we're here to talk about the Franz Mitch project. Can you tell us a bit more about it? What is it exactly for people who don't know? Um, how you started it? Why you wanted to start it? When you started? Well, the Franz Schmidt project is a sort of, it's quite a large project um, to pro simply to promote the music of the Austro-Hungarian composer Franz Schmidt. His 150th birthday is in two years' time, in 2024, December 2024. And I would love to draw his music to the sort of forefront of our orchestral programming mm. so that for his 150th, we play lots of it and we really sort of use it to inspire audiences and draw them into the concert hall, back into this live music where acoustics, which is very important to all of us, really matter. So in order to sort of make this project work, the sort of the backbone of it is I'm creating a new cycle of recordings of his symphonies. There are four symphonies and we also do the carnival music and intermezzo from Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And we, a few weeks ago, we finished doing all of the recording, which you guys came yeah. to in the final sessions. Incredible. Um, so we recorded all the symphonies and the Notre Dame music with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. Yeah. I have also created other bits of content, which I will continue to create. So there's a website where you can find performances of Franz Schmidt, uh, information, little bits of literature about him, some written by me, but mostly by other people. Uh, I've also started actually quite similar to this, a set of interviews of um, conductors and musicologists and historians all about Franz Schmidt called the Franz Schmidt Interviews. Mm -hmm. um, and over the next year, I, I aim to build up a sort of a library of research about Franz Schmidt, about his contemporaries, and about Vienna during that period. I'm totally in love with Vienna. Actually, I'm in love with it now as a city, but also this sort of powder keg, this firework of a moment that was, you know, 
1899 to 1928, 1930, where just so many people uh, sort of gravitated towards and so many different art forms and artists and poets and books were written in so many different ways. Scientific advances were made. It was a real, I mean, there are others, but it was a really special moment, I think, in humanity. Um, and Franz Schmidt was not being one of the famous central figures, like you would say Mahler or Schoenberg or Klimt or Schiele uh, or Musil, any of those were. He was absolutely part of that world. Uh, he was head of the Vienna Conservatoire, so he was teaching a lot of the youth at that moment. He was friends with all of these guys. He was involved in first performances. And although his music is perhaps in some ways looking more back, that is still part of the zeitgeist, uh, is that it was not a moment of modernism, of breaking from the past. It was really a moment of pushing the past to its extremes. Um, and I think that Franz Schmidt is a really important person in that story. Are you planning to do a performance there in Vienna about well, part of Franz Schmidt projects or not? Not yet, but I am working on it. I hope so. Okay. I would love to. Um, I would also love to. I mean, I would love to perform his music in Vienna, but I would also love other people to perform it in the year. The, the project is is led and driven by me, but is not about me in any sense at all. It's about Schmidt and his music. Okay. You just did recordings, but uh, first we're going to do a small game with <laughs> five questions. Fantastic. Uh, no pressure. So how many professional orchestras does the BBC have? Ooh, Scotland, Manchester, uh, London, London, Cardiff, five... Well, the answer is five. Yeah. Well, that's, that's Wikipedia. <laughs> When was the BBC now, so National Orchestra of Wales, was founded? I've no idea. My guess would be the 30s, maybe? 1930s? Well, it's pretty much there. 1928. 1928. Amazing. Obviously, we went to the Hardin Hall and you went to the opening ceremony. I did. Do you know the sitting capacity of the hall? <laughs> no. So it's 350. I was going to say 300. Something um, you, you know, I'm sure you know. Which instruments did Franz Schmidt play? Oh, he played almost all of them. He was a trumpeter, a cellist, a pianist, an organist. He conducted, uh, he composed, he taught composition, he taught counterpoint. He ran the Vienna Conservatoire. I know these aren't exactly instruments, but there's a good list. That's a pretty good list. Did I miss any? Uh, no, but I've got only two. <laughs> <laughs> so, and still Wikipedia. Um, it's piano and cello. Yeah. But I guess that was, they were the, his main instruments. They were his main instruments, yeah. And, and he played them all through his life. At the organ as well, he played. And he wrote a lot for organ. Yeah. Um, and the trumpet he played as a kid. And actually, when we get to talking about his fourth symphony, which you heard us record in Cardiff, it begins and ends with this solo trumpet theme, which for him was a sort of reminiscence of childhood. Interesting. So he's, he's written quite a lot of music as well. And it's how can you, you must be practicing music to a good level to know 
the intricacy of each instrument and I, I don't know how you do maybe he'd do that for his whole life uh, practice music he didn't probably didn't have a job at the time uh, Schmidt yeah Schmidt well he was I mean he's a really interesting example I think he's not a very usual example so he was a he was a, a real prodigy and the people who knew him spoke of him as um, the the most complete musician that they'd ever met. So for instance, there's a uh, anecdotal story by someone who knew him later in life, his doctor. And they were talking about a, a rather unknown piano piece of uh, Robert Schumann. And Schmidt sat down at the piano and played it flawlessly mm-hmm. by heart. He goes, and Schmidt responds by going, oh, that's very interesting. I haven't heard that piece. Or I haven't seen that piece since I was five years old. And so his Schmidt's knowledge and his um his brain was extraordinary. He remembered everything. Uh, you know, there's so many stories of him in the middle of a conversation walking over. They're talking about uh, one little cadence in the middle of a symphony by Mozart or Haydn or Schumann or Bruchner. And he would just walk over and play that cadence. And then he'd be able to play the bits before, the bits after it. Um, he was incredibly talented at the piano. Um, Leopold Godofsky was the sort of the great, great pianist of the early 20th century. And Godofsky was asked in an interview once, who is the greatest pianist? Now, Godofsky was rather narcissistic. So his answer was, well, the other one is Franz Schmidt, suggesting that Franz Schmidt was up at his level, which is sort of unheard of. Uh, He was famously one of the best cellists in Vienna. Gustav Mahler, who was the conductor of the Vienna Staatsoper at the time, um, always wanted Franz Schmidt to play the solos um, in the Vienna Philharmonic or the uh, Vienna Staatsoper, which is the same organization. So, I mean, his knowledge of instruments came from sitting in orchestras all his life. I think he got the job in the Vienna Philharmonic when he was 19. Uh, which is also when he started writing his first symphony. And the first symphony is a, I mean, we recorded it two years ago now and it will come out in the release. And it's an extraordinary piece written between the ages of 19 and about 23. And I think what I was doing between 19 and 23, and it wasn't writing a 50 minute long, beautifully scored, in-depth romantic symphony with second subject, fugal ideas, um, every note taken care of. I mean, the first symphony does reference a lot of the other composers of the time, Richard Strauss, uh, Bruckner, but a, a lot of Brahms as well and Schubert. But still already he had his own voice. So for me, understanding instruments comes from sitting in rehearsals, learning, reading about them, listening to recordings, speaking to uh, my colleagues about their playing, understanding them over time. But I think for Schmidt, it really came from a very young age. Um, the other piece that we recorded this January um, is a piece called Notre Dame, the carnival music and intermezzo from Notre Dame. Beautiful, um, luscious, romantic piece. And he wrote that when he was 21. I, bu- I read a book, I think it's in Peak, from uh, Dave... David Epstein, who was talking about talent mm. and he's, I think he's American and he's, um, his philosophy or his theory was more that you don't, you acquire talent 
you don't you're not born with it and there was there's a lot of um anecdotes about uh -huh. different about music and musicians and there was one thing about mozart and they were saying well maybe they've made the story better than with it is actually like he was able to listen to an orchestra yeah. or a piece of music, really complicated one, and able to replay it or retranscribe mm -hmm. it. And he was saying, well, maybe that wasn't so true. Maybe he was able to uh, write again a little piece of it and they've made it a big story or being able to uh, play very, like very complicated pieces of piano or something yeah. uh, really early. Well, maybe... Maybe not. Maybe his dad, we know he was a musician and he maybe trained him um, well before, but um, they might have maybe not lied. So I wonder if we know people like this at the moment here, uh, contemporary people who do exactly the same. So maybe Franz Schmidt was yeah. able to do, uh, to transcribe or replay what he'd heard. Was it a very complicated piece? Um, I'm just challenging that yeah, thought. Yeah. I mean, I think the talent question is a very interesting one. Um, I mean, my personal view, there's a wonderful phrase from a geneticist um, mm. called Matt Ridley that I once read. Actually, there's a whole book on it called Nature Via Nurture, that you have these inbred, for him, genetic uh, basic talents, if you want to call them, but that you have to expose them and you have to then build them up and train them and provide the right nurturing for mm -hmm. them. And I think that musically that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think this this idea of hearing something and being able to reproduce it is actually not as um, out of the ordinary as we like think. to think. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to work often with living composers and uh, my great mentor was Oliver Nussen, who had a completely photographic memory and remembered absolutely everything as though it was yesterday. I don't know exactly how Schmidt's memory functioned, but that you could easily tell the same stories. Uh, I knew Pierre Boulez, and Pierre Boulez and Oliver Nussen had these ears, and everyone talks about how extraordinary their ears are, meaning that you have like a cluster chord with 150 people playing it in an orchestra, and they can pick out wrong notes like this. But there are also a lot of professional uh, conductors and composers and musicians who are able to do things like that. And it comes from years and hours and hours and hours of training and understanding the, the patterns beneath music. Uh, you mentioned Mozart. I mean, for me, the most extraordinary thing about Mozart is not his memory or even his youth, but is his sort of grace and the sublimity with which he can write music mm. or he makes us feel, you know, we're 350 odd years after his death, a new player, a piano concerto or a, an opera. And we're moved by it because it's so intimate and vulnerable and strong and powerful all at the same time. Yeah. But I have no doubt that he could play anything he heard. But also he was, you know, let's say 1770 or in Vienna. And a lot of the music is based on similar patterns. You know, you have harmonic music, you have sonata form, things reoccur. So it's like, instead of having to remember every single pixel of the picture, you go, ah, person, person, uh, bed, picture on the wall. Yeah. And you can recreate those much easier. It's like when you, people remember numbers. Yeah. You know, remembering 10 uh, individual numbers is quite hard. Yeah. But remembering 
two numbers, you know, 10,025 and 32,462 is quite easy. That's true, yeah. So I think that as you develop through your training, you may have a phenomenal memory, but then you develop in training's way of compartmentalizing things and understanding the structures behind things. I think that uh, Schmidt was an extraordinary person and an extraordinary composer, but I also know extraordinary living people of equal, if not more... Um, talented. Talented, yeah. Mm. We've got one last question. Oh, only one last. <laughs> Franz Schmidt, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Fernand Porsche have something in common. What is it? They all have or had a passion for cars. They are or were all musicians, secretly, secretly or not. Interesting, I didn't know that. They were all or are Austrian. Mm-hmm. What's, what's right? Oh, two of those are wrong. That's good, because I was about to say, wow, those are really interesting. I didn't know either of those. Well, they're all Austrian. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, how do you know I'm that Franz Schmidt has a passion for cars? I think I've read everything about him, and I didn't know that. Anyway, good, yes. You, you could have some secret passions. I have many secret passions, but maybe that's for a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they- interestingly, though... Schmidt, I don't actually know where Schwarzenegger or Porsche were born, but Schmidt was not born in what we now think of as Austria. Because back in the late 19th century, of course, it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he was born in now what's a little um, uh, outskirt of Bratislava. His first language was Hungarian. He only moved to Vienna, I think, when he was a teenager. It's, um, It's a sort of rather sad story. His father was was caught embezzling money from a firm, was in prison. So his mother and uh, Schmidt and his sister, I believe, moved to Vienna to stay with some uh, family there. So, and actually that, I mean, I hope we'll talk about it later, but his Hungarianness and his, um, there's this word Magyar, which is a sort of Hungarian nationality, um, comes through all of his music, um, often in his sort of lyrical second subjects, get, you know, violins playing up the G-string, these sort of very intense, almost gypsy-esque Hungarian uh, melodies. So it was very important for him that he was Austro-Hungarian and not just Austrian. You just did recordings. Or did you do also some performances? Yeah, I've performed that? his music a lot, okay. both leading up to the recordings and after some of them and... Um, have dates in the diaries to do more over the next few years. I'd love to do, I mean, any of the symphonies, but also some of the music that I haven't recorded. There's a whole bunch of piano piano and orchestra pieces for left-handed pianist, because one of his great friends was uh, Paul Wittgenstein, brother of Ludwig Wittgenstein, the philosopher. Mm-hmm. Paul uh, Wittgenstein was a fabulous pianist who lost his right arm in the First World War. And afterwards, he commissioned a whole bunch of left-handed piano music. The most famous one is the Ravel left-hand concerto, uh, but also Korngold, Hindemith, and Schmidt wrote two huge pieces of chamber music for left-handed piano and uh, various instruments. There's a piano concerto for left-handed piano. There's two other sort of sets of piano variations for left-handed piano. So really, there's a huge wealth of repertoire there. What's... um... It may sound a bit naive, but what's so specific about 
playing, well, having left-handed piano pieces. Well, you only have, you can only play the piano with one hand. Yeah. So, uh, whereas you normally play like this and you traditionally have some sort of bass uh, accompaniment, melody, second voice inside here, or, you know, you you think of Rachmaninoff piano concertos and it's big hands all Mm -hmm. over the keyboard. Here you can only create that with one hand. So for the composer, it takes a lot of imagination and craft to make something that sounds full and projects over an orchestra and that has all of these qualities. And the way Schmidt does it is extraordinary. You, when you hear them, you have no idea that they're played by one hand. I think it's those kind of things that, I mean, obviously we had a, a brief introduction to Schmidt's music, which... Um, Otherwise, I might, I may not have listened to hadn't I've come, but it seems from what you've said, he was quite innovative. And especially given that he spent time writing music for a left-handed pianist, something which, you know, like even guitars in the 50s and 60s, you know, you didn't get left-handed guitars. So to be 30, 40 years before that, um, or even earlier, that he's writing music for a left-handed pianist is quite... <laughs> and it's those kind of things that then would... that push music onwards. Yeah, I think... I mean, Schmidt was definitely innovative, but um, one of the big things that I'm actually trying to sort of promote through this is that music doesn't have to be innovative or pushing music forwards mm-hmm. in order for it to be worth listening to. Yeah. Um, because I think there were other people who were pushing music in a more extreme way at that time through their use of chords or uh, atonal music or this really crunchy uh, music that you would now recognise from like horror movies or nasty music, although I find a lot of it very beautiful. And I think that there's a there's a habit in the music world, in all of the art worlds, actually, of finding this, like, single line of history. Like, and the one thing leads to the next, which leads to the next. And that's all very well, and sometimes it works like that. Often it doesn't. But much more interesting for me is to sort of broaden that out and understand the time that is much... the, the, the sort of the, the period of time which is much bigger and to see everything that's going on And actually, if we think of what's going on now, I think it's really important that we don't only judge things on their newness or their perceived newness, even if it's something old, because that actually blinds us to the beauty or the interest or the imagination that a song or a painting or a book can can bring to us. And I think that we if we continue to to think of things as only important or only interesting if they move something forwards. Of course, they're very easy to sell, or we think they're very easy to sell. The first this, the first that breaking tradition, oh, they've they've done something no one's done before. You can talk, you can talk in hyperbole, you can put things in big writing in your magazines. And that's great, and things need to sell, and those things are very important too. The things that are harder to sell are the things that are really beautifully crafted, that are taking time, that someone's whole imagination in their heart and their mind sort of become one. And that for me is what Schmidt has. He has this vulnerability um, and every single note of his music is taken care of. I was lucky enough, I went to Vienna and I sat in the library for a few weeks and I went through all of his manuscripts. Um, And they are incredible because they look a little bit like exercises. 
So, you know, he writes a little melody and then he gets it a little bit better and a little bit better. And by better, what I mean is there's like a gravitational pull. So you get a note and it falls and then it has to come back up and it falls again and then it drags up and then there's a tension created and then there's a, a crash to the bottom. And all of his music in every single line of his music, so not just the melody sounds good, but you take the viola part or the second clarinet part or the double bass line and you play it by itself, as you maybe heard when we were rehearsing a bit. And it's a beautiful melody. And I think that that is something really important at this moment. Uh, we're sort of, we're diversifying and it's a beautiful thing. We're diversifying in so many ways. My God, we need to, and it's well overdue. But I think one small part of that also needs to be a diversification and of getting away from everything has to be new and, and yeah, moving yeah. forwards. One question I was wondering is, um, what's your relationship with um, BBC Now Orchestra? Do you have to pick a very specialist orchestra or any orchestras, BBC or other orchestras, could play Franz Schmidt? Have you got a relationship with, with the BBC Now Orchestra? Yeah, so I, I actually have a very long relationship with the BBC Now. I've been going there for over 10 years now. Okay. Um, I started off as an assistant. My teacher was their principal guest, conductor Jacques Van Steen. And I went there really as part of my studies as a 20-year-old, as a 21-year-old. Um, and I helped him with his rehearsals and I listened and I got to know the orchestra. Um, I went actually even before the Hodenot Hall was built. And they had a studio um, in Klandauf in sort of North Cardiff. Um And we used to go there and Jacques would take programs and I'd rehearse um, or I'd listen to his rehearsals and learn a lot. Um, and then that went on for some years. Then they moved to Hoddenot Hall and Jacques was there and we were there at the, the opening of that hall. Then um, a colleague, a friend of mine actually very sadly fell ill and uh, couldn't do a concert six, seven years ago. Um, and they called me in completely last minute Uh, a really tough program of new music, um, a suite from Ryan Wigglesworth's opera, um, a piece of Alexander Gers, um, and a huge oboe concerto by John Woolrich. Uh, and it went really, really well. And then we started to form this relationship uh, with me as the conductor. And I did a bunch of things, some concerts, some recording sessions for the BBC. And so when I was, when I was putting this project together and thinking about which which orchestra I wanted to do this project with, the BBC really sort of came out forefront because I knew them very well. Um, I loved the time that they had. They're very, they're a very focused orchestra. They're incredible when the red light comes on. I mean, this sort of, these antennae come up and they play really in a very focused way and they really They want to get everything perfect and brilliant. The red light made me made me feel anxious, anxious because I felt like when obviously in Cardiff, um, when it went on, um, you can't do anything, you can't move. No, it's. And I mean, it's terrifying. The red light for those who who don't know, I'm sure you do from uh, studios, is in the middle of the orchestra and on both the walls whenever the record button is pressed, these big red lights come on. And you know that these microphones are picking up 
every single sound. I mean, even breath or rustling of clothes or you move your feet on the ground, you turn a page, pick them up. So there's this, I suppose it's a tension, but even more it's a focus that comes down when the red light goes on, much more than a concert even. Because in a concert, there's a flow and you've got all of this ritual of warming up, of putting your concert clothes on, coming out onto stage, tuning up, sitting down, lights go down, and then you start to play. In a recording session, you have to find that extreme level of hearing, of sensitivity, of playing, of relaxation as well. And you find it for anything from two minutes to 50 minutes. And then the red light goes off and you talk and you do things again and it comes back on and immediately you've got to be there again. So it's a real, it's a real craft. And the BBC Welsh are an incredible recording orchestra. Radio orchestras, so orchestras that play for the radio often. So the BBC orchestras or in Germany, the Rundfunk orchestras or uh, in Paris, the radio orchestra, they're all around the world. In Vienna as well, the Vienna radio orchestra. They sort of train this approach to playing with a red light and performing and knowing how to take risks as well. Because it's, if you want to play perfectly, that's one thing. You play safely, but that's not making music. That's not bringing it to life. So you have to take risks. And that was that sort of training and craftsmanship of recording. Also some of the personas, they've got phenomenal wind players in Cardiff. They've got a great bass section and they've got the Hodenot Hall um, and wonderful strings. They're two leaders. Um, we have two different leaders um, for the violins, the violas, the cellos and the basses are all beautiful players. So. I really knew that we had a team that would really commit and um, almost, I, I hope, relish the opportunity of really getting into an unknown composer's music. We, we had to work very hard at finding his style, at finding a way that the notes pop off the page. Schmidt doesn't necessarily write everything that I think needs to be there in the music. If you look at a um, a piece of Schoenberg written in the same year as a piece of Schmidt. The Schoenberg will have directions, so words, every bar, every two bars, with grace, slowing down, speeding up, uh, freely, uh, loudly, aggressively, softly, passionately, very passionately. And Schmidt just has fast. But I don't think that means that those directions aren't there. You don't play it flat, but you have to sort of make them in your playing. And the BBC were so willing and that was what we were working on really is to find the life and the the life in between the notes and in between the rhythms. There's a lot and I really knew the BBC could could do this because they have incredible rhythm. Music is not like a metronome. It's There's types of music which really... Some music functions from sounding mechanical but most music has to sound like it's breathed. So rhythm has to be constant and it can't get in the way, but it also becomes an expressive means. And for a lot of Viennese music, as you hear in the waltz, um, rhythm is not regular. So if you, you know, a waltz is in three and you go, and if you play that like a clock, it's completely dead. You can't dance to it. So there's these very Viennese, they, they, there are others elsewhere, but Viennese tradition of bayam, 
pam piyam pam piyam pim and finding this sort of flexibility and nuance in the very rhythm of the music also in the hungarian music we we mentioned earlier that schmidt has this big hungarian um uh side to him and if you play hungarian music straight um so for instance in the fourth symphony pa di di po di ya da 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 di 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 it's dull as hell but if you go pa ya di da ya ya da 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 di it's got this like rhythmic vomf then suddenly it comes to life or i think it does so because i had this relationship sorry to get back to your question i just like talking too much <laughs> to get well, back we, to your question you had to talk so you <laughs> also to listen maybe um the reason for choosing the bbc welsh was i knew that they had all of these tools and this sensitivity from working with them and they have a very relaxed and focused approach to making music and this craft of recording Mm-hmm. and i'm thrilled i wouldn't i wouldn't change the orchestra in a million years how much did you take to prepare for the recordings did you have to practice before and if yes how much um what what did it take to prepare with the orchestra well with the orchestra not very much um okay that's surprising because you'd think there's a lot of prep, uh, prep especially for in practice and get everybody tuned well yeah. I mean the first thing is that uh, the, the BBC Welsh but all professional orchestras they play every week together yeah two concerts a week three so the being of an orchestra so playing in tune having sound having approach to articulation they deal with on a regular basis so one expects from a professional orchestra that you turn up and pretty much the first run through is good pretty incredible but it's they are it really is a professional orchestra yeah. people i don't think people ever realize how talented and how even more than talented how just goddamn hard working these players are so you know we turn up on a i can't remember i think we started on wednesday you turned up on friday we started yeah. on wednesday and it was the first time we'd played this symphony and the notre dame together we spent one day so six hours rehearsing then on tuesday we recorded the whole of the symphony sorry on thursday the second day we recorded the whole of the symphony uh then on the friday which was the day you came we ran the symphony in its entirety first thing and then we worked on the other piece now of course things do happen before that first rehearsal so the players have the music a month or two months in advance difficult passages they look through uh soloists and important players maybe listen to some recordings maybe they practice their part maybe they don't uh, i that's in some ways that's a hidden world for a conductor all you know is that when you turn up they're really prepared and for some people that'll be they can read it and particularly in the uk the level of sight reading and not just being able to play but being able to make music sight reading is extraordinary like it's the highest level in the world i think really so oh absolutely i mean that's not a hidden fact um when people come and they watch uh, british orchestras read through something a brand new piece of music for the very first time and it sounds perfect it's like oh 
are they all teachers uh, or just really, really professional? And I mean, I think they are definitely just all professional. A lot of them do teach. Yeah. Um, but it's not the teach. It's not being a teacher that gives them this no, ability. No, to me, um, being a teacher is you've reached a certain level. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know you have that level, uh, and maybe also, well, from not experience but knowledge, I know that musicians struggle to make hands meet uh, and yeah. make a living, so they have to do different activities. That that's for well, what I know, uh, but it may have changed. I, some I think, organizations may pay well their yeah. um, their musicians. I mean, I think all musicians have to work hard to make ends meet and yeah. to to live the life that they deserve. Um, and a lot of them teach, and I think those who don't teach maybe do other things or they don't for some reason, but every single person in an orchestra in the UK could teach and has a lot to teach people. To me, it's being able to read... I'll play as you read is quite incredible. Yeah. I don't know what you think, Jake, but... Um, uh, well, as as a musician myself, but perhaps, well, definitely more unorthodox compared to the people that perform in, for example, BBC Wales, but um, I've... I learned to read music, forgot. Learned to read again, <laughs> forgot. I think I tried one more time and then thought... You know, this isn't, I, you know, I absolutely appreciate um, orchestral music and that tenacity to, to learning, you know, the, the intricacies of it. But, and that's the great thing, you know, I don't think you have to understand it on that level to appreciate it. No. And, you know, I think that's the, the great thing. You, you don't have to understand, you know, a great movie and how that's made. No to appreciate it and of course there's all these there's this hidden sort of world of orchestras how like professional and the dedication but just to sit and listen is you know I think that's brilliant. a really important thing and I'm thrilled that you think that because it's I'm I talk about that a lot because I think in the classical world there is this misunderstanding that you need to know something in order to enjoy the music. You absolutely don't. You need to listen and you need to like actively listen. You have to be present and want to take something. It's not like being spoon fed or, you know, injecting yourself with um, uh, a Netflix series that, you know, is a wonderful drug, which we all do. But if you're really there and actively listening, you need to know nothing and you can be affected and you you can be affected by the nuance and by the detail of it and the thing is that the things that people think they need to know are basically only descriptive words for how something sounds you talk about cadences bars um phrase lengths uh uh Schenkerian analyses uh sonata form, rondo form, none of that matters. It, it's this very beautiful and very interesting way of trying to describe the sound. But if you listen to the sound, it's all there. Um, so I, I love what you just said and I wholeheartedly agree. 
During our first uh, interview, we talked about setting up the orchestra. Yeah. Um, did you have to work on it for the recordings? And if yes, what what did you do? What sort of work and rearrangement did you have to do? Setting up an orchestra is a sort of a, a balancing act between ideals and realities. Um, so, for instance, I came in to the first sessions with a real ideal image of how I wanted the orchestra sat. I wanted the violins on one on one side, one on the other side. I wanted double basses behind the winds. I wanted timpani on the side behind the trumpets. I wanted the horns and trombones in one line at the back. And I had very clear, distinct musical reasons for why I wanted this to happen. However, when we got into the hall and those particular players, we started changing around a bit because it's a balance between the idea of how you imagine the music working, but also how the hall works, how the acoustics work, how the microphones work. But even more importantly, it's how the individual players of the orchestra work. And so, for instance, in Hodinot Hall, we found that it was quite hard for the violins on either side of the conductor to hear each other. Not impossible, but what it did was it made them very uncomfortable and very nervous. And so in order to get them to relax, to feel relaxed and comfortable and to play the best they could, I moved the violins back. Now, I lost a little bit in this sort of stereo, one violin sound, the other violin sound. But what I gained was a depth of sound, uh, an intonation, an ensemble, a happy violence or a happier violin section. And so little things like that, um, it's always a, 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 a matter of compromise or a matter of negotiation. Um, some of the things as well, we, we, uh, we moved the contrabassoon, which is the big bass uh, bassoon, behind the bassoons. Normally they're in one line. But... Um, both for the microphones, for the hall, and importantly for the player, he felt more confident fulfilling the role in this music of that instrument because the contrabassoon is actually used almost as a solo bass instrument. And you often get the cellos playing the bass line and only the contra playing the low 16-foot. And so for Phileas, the producer, and for the player, it was a much better place for him to be which was unusual. I would never suggest that to an orchestra and that suggestion came from the player. It was fantastic. So I think it's also really important um, to, to understand where you want the sound to sound best. And for these recordings, that was of course in the box. Um, two of the symphonies we did play live and then it was a matter of making it sound really good in the hall and in the box. But when you came along for the fourth symphony, I mean, it did sound good in the hall, but we didn't ever go back and listen in the hall or think, how does it sound from row three? How does it sound from row 50? All we did was we listened through the microphones and we adjusted the microphones and the players and where I was. And there were certain things which I heard too much of or too little of. So even for, for me as a conductor, it wasn't... I mean, you never want it to sound perfect here. I mean, if it does, it's very wonderful. And there are some halls where it does and it sounds great out there. But there are other halls where you have to make the translation. 
And so for me, I, I would go back every day into the recording studio. So we have a main orchestral studio and then behind there's a recording box with the, with the sound desk and speakers and to speak to Vilius and to listen to the sound so that I could then make the translation in my head. So I'd know in this passage, I need much more viola than sounds right because in the box that will sound good or I need less of that or I don't need to worry that I can't hear the harps because they're picked up really well in the box. One thing really striking during the recordings was the difference in dynamics and that's what we talked about. Yeah. Um, you could perceive much more dynamics in the hall but it was clear but not as clear as in the studio Yeah. And in the studio, there was way less dynamics, but you could understand or hear better every instrument. Yeah. Um, I know you also mentioned, or we mentioned that um, Hodden Hall is probably best for recording yeah. and rehearsing, not so much for performance yeah. to an audience. Um, I mean, have you have you been? So I, I have done concerts audience. and it's lovely for an audience. You feel very close to the orchestra. Um, it's quite a small hall for a concert hall. So you get this very immediate sound. It's very sort of crisp and clear. Um, and I've both sat in the audience there and I've done concerts there. And it's wonderful and it's a great experience. But it's built as a recording studio. And so it sounds best or it works really, really well in the box. But... I mean, we, 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 we were chatting about this. Recording is not live music. It's a reproduction of live music. And for me, it's actually almost a completely different art form. And classical music in particular, but other sorts of music, but classical music in particular is a live art form. You need to hear it in an acoustic. You need to somehow hear the wood of the violin vibrating and the wood of the hall or the, the wood of the seat vibrating. And you need to be there surrounded by living people in silence and in darkness and sort of you, you soften into the experience and your ears go out onto the stage. And that's where you get this incredible, tangible, almost, well, definitely physical connection with the musicians on stage, with the composer. And it's like you build this bridge between you and someone who, who is different from you, who is another. And I think that, that that's really unique in classical music. And I think the more that we, we fight for that and show it and draw people into that, the stronger classical music will be. Of course, recording then is something different and something is absolutely lost. I 100% agree and I didn't go into these recordings trying to emulate that live performance because I don't think you can. So I before before doing this, I, I thought long and long and hard and I read a lot about the philosophy of recording and experience of recordings and I listened to, I mean, I, I've always listened to recordings and I have thousands of vinyl LPs and CDs and my flat is basically books, CDs and LPs. You think I'm exaggerating, I'm not. Literally piles everywhere. I saw a glimpse of, of the room of <laughs> yeah. the office. It's a I bit can mad. confirm. Um, but I really wanted to 
to have a meaning and a reason for creating these recordings. And actually, it was very interesting going through the process that for the different symphonies, that changed depending on what the symphony was expressing. What you do in a recording is that you're you're given a canvas on which to construct something which whose job or which the job of which is to move people and create emotions in them through the medium of recording. So what you can do is you can balance things, you can create, I want to not use the word perfect because perfect in recording is actually a, a bad word, but really consistent uh, lines which are unbroken and uncompromised at all. And that's what you look for in a recording. And that's what we were looking for in the orchestra. And it's not just there on the surface, or it's not just there if you choose to listen to the violins or the double basses. It's there whatever you listen to. I don't think I will ever live up to that ideal. But it's something to really aim at. And wherever we come, will be will be strengthened by that. One thing I was quite interested to know is obviously because we acousticians um, suggest a lot of options and viable options for acoustics. Uh-huh. How did you work on the acoustics of the Hardinet Hall during the recordings? There were there's quite a few options. Obviously, there's the curtains all around the, yeah. the stage. There's uh, more curtains at the back. There's so there was some. Um, Uh, some sliding panels as well yeah. as, as at the top um, and there's diffusion on the walls all around so that's pretty good for the um, yeah. uh, the musicians but also to avoid any flat echoes um, and yeah so it's quite it would be quite interesting to know how you use it and if you use it because we do think a lot about it we do do a lot of calcs but how actually how much do you use that I mean, absolutely we used it. Um, I mean, the first thing is that it was super important for me that these recordings sounded like they were in a space, that they're not, you know, I didn't want a completely dead room and then you add reverb. So there were no sort of added effects or, you know, electronic additions or things like that. So I really wanted to situate the orchestra in a space and Phileas, our producer, gets this extraordinary sort of three-dimensional sound where you really hear the strings, the winds, the brasses, the timpani, and you feel like there is real distance but closeness at the same time. Often, you know, when we were sitting there, I would talk about, oh, do you think we could move the sound so that the person listening is sitting three rows forward or four rows back, or that's how I talked about it. So the within the Hodnot Hall, I did, or we talked about... Um, For instance, we opened the curtains because we didn't want the deadness. We wanted the the liveness of the hall. Um, for some of the symphonies, but not all of them, depending on the size of the orchestra, we opened the the big shutters at the top to again create more volume and more more reverberance in the space. Um, but a bit like the orchestral seating. You have a you have an ideal sound in mind, and there are various paths to get there. And changing the acoustics of the hall is, of course, one of them. 
but of course another of them is you play differently and um another is you microphone differently so it was very much a sort of a negotiation between all the parties and working out what again made the orchestra feel most comfortable um working out what made the microphone sound best and what made the space sound best and if you had more time you might experiment with more with different ways of getting the same result um but i think i think the control is very important because you you change the playing you change the microphones and then you're left somewhere and it's like ah i still can't get this okay let's open those okay then you change the playing you change the microphones ah we've got it so of course the hall is the biggest thing and the slowest thing to move the players are the quickest thing to move so you start with the players then you do the microphones and then you do the hall so having that flexibility is hugely important almost even if you don't use all of it the other thing that was quite striking was the size of the volume of the Ardennes hall yeah. and we don't see it from because there's the reflectors the overhead reflectors in the way but when you step on top go on top of the audience and you look at the volume it's just massive and it feels yeah. like there's even double volume from yeah from the floor to the um the reflectors you seem you feel like there's the same height above and it's it's so important for to control the volume of the orchestra and when you when we listen to the orchestra it didn't feel loud at all around or yeah. within the orchestra so it's it was quite incredible obviously no. you could play really really loud and we did perceive it and made us jump yeah. uh, but then you could really control the level and i guess it's also a way to not have music sound too loud and prevent hearing loss well I mean, the hearing loss is very important, and I think uh, the BBC are very careful, and uh, I think they have a pretty good setup there. But um, when we talked last time in the in the blog, um, I mentioned that I love working in smaller concert halls because it or it makes players or I can encourage players to play a little bit less and go for the reverberance in the sound, which for me is a slightly more authentic, older approach to making sound where the sound sort of spins out of the instrument and you're not trying to project the back of a 6000 seater hall you're trying to make the most perfect sound for the moment expressive sound where you are um and that was one of the things i love about hodnot hall is that you can play softer particularly in the louder sections and you probably heard me i kept well, not i kept but i i asked many times for the strings the winds and particularly the brasses to play more gently take one dynamic volume down because then you get this richer warmer um more analog more um materialistic sound like you can hear the materials of the instruments um and you hear real reverberation and warmth in it not all music needs or wants or demands that but schmidt absolutely There was a I used it in the rehearsals there's a beautiful saying in a 
in a book by Stefan Zweig, who was also an Austrian author of the same sort of time as Schmidt. And he described there was an old hall in uh, Vienna called the Bösen, the Bösendorfer Saal, which I think was bombed, so it no longer exists. But he describes the sound there in a very sort of beautifully poetic way as sounding like you're inside a dusty old violin. I thought that was beautiful. And that's how I want it to sound, sort of with this, with this sort of almost tender um, fragility to the sound, even when it's strong and powerful. And I think that that space and having that, that physical volume above and having the microphones meant that we didn't have to blast. We never had to play out, um, which means that you can find more colors. It's like speaking. You know, if you have to shout, you have only a certain color range. But if you can shout and speak and whisper, suddenly you have all of these colors to play with. When what sort of microphones were used and how many? Because we saw quite a lot. We tried to uh, count, but I lost count. (laughs) Well, so you came for the fourth symphony, which we actually had a slightly different approach to. Um, The simple answer is that I left the microphone choice and microphone placement up to Phileas, our producer. But I left it up to him whilst having quite in-depth conversations about the sound that we were looking for, about why we were looking for that sound. Um, Now, the the fourth symphony for me stands apart in Schmidt's symphony cycle. The first three symphonies up, they're wonderful, they're beautiful, they are really traditional symphonies. They, They expand form, they expand the emotions a little bit, but what they do is they do something that we understand and we know, and they do it really well. So I wanted to create something that it was like looking at, going into the National Gallery and looking at a painting, a Botticelli, and you go, wow, isn't that extraordinary? And it draws you in a little bit, but there's still a sort of sense of display of objectivity in a way. Now, for the fourth symphony, I think it's it's Schmidt's absolute masterpiece. It's something completely different. And the music functions on a very different way. So it's not something, something, and a dialogue between the, the two objects. What it is, is it's, it's this unbroken line. So it's a 45-minute piece. For those who don't know the piece, you guys have heard it. It's a 45, 50-minute-long piece, um, which starts with a solo trumpet, goes to a solo trumpet playing the same thing, but metamorphosized at the end. Uh, It was written uh, after the death of Schmidt's daughter. Um, She was giving birth and she died, although the Schmidt's granddaughter interestingly survived. Um, And it's deeply emotional. um, And it's this sort of almost stream of consciousness outpouring. It has forms, it has, on one level, it has a traditional three slash four movement form. But for me, what I wanted was I, and I, what I want in the recording, and we'll see, I haven't yet heard the edits, so we'll see whether this works, is I want someone to turn it on and be completely sucked in and feel completely immersed in the world that is Schmidt's Fourth Symphony and for it to take them, almost grab them by the scruff of the neck and take them from the first trumpet solo to 50 minutes later 
and for it to sort of resonate inside them. So, coming back to your question about microphones, I spoke to Phileas about wanting to have a much more immersive sound, a much more uh, visceral sound that sounds... So on one level, it sounds much closer. So we close mic'd things more. Um, and I believe he also mic'd things sometimes from different angles so that we can we can slightly mix the sound and create this this sort of more acoustic version of the sound in a, in a funny way. Um, we have yet to do the mix, so it'll be interesting to see what we eventually choose. It gives us a lot of options. But the, as a sort of an, an aside, you, you said you saw lots of microphones, and there were lots. In the edits that Phileas gave me, so after each day he'd give me takes so I could go and listen and see, he gave me only the stereo pair. And he created in that stereo pair exactly the sound that I wanted. So we will see how the discussions go over the next few months, but we may end up even having had all of those microphones of just having two or three microphones, maybe with some additions. Um, my first conversation with Phileas, and one of the reasons why I knew that... I was going to ask you about him. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, go on. Why I knew I wanted to work with him was that we were speaking about recordings, and I said, what I really want to do is I want to create a recording like the old Mercury Living Presence recordings. Now, Mercury Living Presence were created by um, a company in the US in the 50s, and they used two or three microphones, positioned often sort of above the conductor's head, maybe a little bit back, and they used these um, microphones, the Shops M201s. Uh, I think they're called something different in Europe and the US. Um, and anyway, Phileas knew exactly what I was talking about. He goes, oh, I love the sound of that. I completely get it. And they create this sound where you feel like you're at the point of contact on the instrument. So you feel like you're on the string. You're at the point of the hair on the string. You're, at the, you're in the reed of the instrument. But at the same time you're observing that particular point from a great distance. There are lots of great recordings, but I have never come across anything quite so, so visceral but spacious at the same time. Um, and that's what I really, for all of the recordings, but then the fourth really quite extremely, I wanted to create that. How long have you been working with Phileas for? And I presume he's not part of BBC Wales. No, Phileas is part of Accenture's music. So uh, Phileas, um, Phileas uh, is our producer. Uh, he comes from the record company, which is Accenture's music. They're, they're based in Leipzig. Phileas uh, has a team uh, of engineers and uh Well, they all, they're, they're an incredible team. They all do everything, actually. Uh, and they all come from Lithuania. He has a studio in Lithuania. The producer's job in a, in a recording is to set up microphones, to create the sound, uh, to, to work during the sessions on the, the mechanics of the recording, but also then to lead us, the conductor, the orchestra, through the recording session. So he's the one who we trust with knowing whether something went right or not, because he hears it in the box. And when you perform something, whether it's a short bit or a longer bit, he'll go, oh, I need that again, but horns, could you do this? Or violas, could we have a bit more? Or can we make sure that the third beat of this bar is really together? Or he might ask me, Jonathan, you know, uh, 
do you think that was okay? Or I will ask him, Phileas, did we get that? Or I'll say, I think we can do that a bit better. Or sometimes I say, Phileas, that was a really good take. And he's there in the box and we have this uh, little speaker in the orchestra and it feels like a voice of God because we don't see Phileas. <laughs> and he just sort of speaks from above and goes, thank you for the next section, you know. <laughs> yeah, quite intimidating the first time I heard him. I thought he was telling me off or something because I had moved <laughs> during the red light. But he's a, I love working with him. He's so, he's got phenomenal ears, not just for the details of recording and the details of what's together and in tune but for actually the music of it and the line and the the music has to feel alive otherwise why bother you know you don't want to create a perfect jewel box which has no life it's got to be lived by us performing but also by the people listening and we had we had long conversations about that um, and he was great in the sessions at really sort of saying, okay, that was perfect, but now let's take some risks and knowing when to sort of, when to do that and when to just get things right. And Yeah. One thing I noticed, and I, I was not expecting this, was that you were, you, you were recording in chunks. Yeah. Not in, in one go. And there was quite a, a lot of few small chunks so I guess it's Billy's job to yeah. to stick everything together. But yeah, uh, I didn't. I wasn't ex expecting this. The the chunks work work on lots of different levels. Um, the first thing is it's a it's a sort of concentration uh, thing, and you can be really clear about what it is you're going for, and you play it two or three times, and you you get into that moment when you're you know two minutes or three minutes. And you know that you're making this shape and that shape and you can really sort of warm up into it. It's a bit like, um, you know, before playing sport, you, you warm up or, you know, you might, you might take a shot four or five times and then you're ready to do it. It's this, it's the same sort of thing. Um, the second thing is that for the instrumentalists, Schmidt's music is really hard. And in order for them to be able to play right on the edge, uh, so to take risks and to make all of the colors that they possibly can, sometimes taking things out of context allows them, particularly for the winds and brasses, to swallow, to breathe, to relax their lips. And then they know that this bit, they're going for their like ultimate pianissima. Now they can do that in concert with uh, you know, with momentum and with line and in a concert, in a live situation, it's about something else. It's about connecting to the things before and after. But recording is, microphones are clinical. They sort of whitewash everything in a way. So you have to work even harder to make, to make colors and phrasing. Um, and in a hall, if you hear a phrasing that goes, da yum, ba -dum, through a microphone, it will sound ba -dum, ba -bum. So you have to play it, and so to sort of work that out and to make all of those translations really from normal playing practice um, into chunks for, for just uh, stamina, for fitness, for concentration. Great. So when will the album be released? October. Okay. 
October, we've got, um, there's still a bit of work to do. So we've recorded everything, but we now have to edit it. Um, and one of the great things that I love working with Phileas for is that I will go over to Lithuania and we will spend some days sitting next to each other in his studio, going through moment by moment, trying to find the the best, you know, this line that we were talking about, trying to really make it and listening in great detail, but also listening over the whole thing. Because it's not a, it's not about just the details. It's about the the whole being made up of the details. Um, and then I have asked an Austrian photographer, Christina Feldhammer, to take some photographs of the of Vienna, Vienna and the surroundings and the nature around Vienna, which was very inspirational to Schmidt. Uh, and so she will create um, a front cover for the CDs. Also, hopefully, some 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 sh- some shots for a little exhibition and I'm hoping to put an exhibition of that up in Vienna and in uh, London sort of combining Schmidt and the photographs. I've worked with her uh, two or three times before. She's an extraordinary analog photographer and she does all her work in the darkroom as well and uh, it's the approach and the aesthetic uh, to creating, she creates these like tangible photographs, which is exactly what I'm after in my recordings as well. So I'm, I'm hoping we'll get some really beautiful, meaningful photographs. We're reaching the last part. Oh no! Oh, the podcast. I know. Uh, and it's generally what's your favorite venue as? Uh, so. And I know we've already discussed it during our interview yeah. on the blog, but it would be quite interesting. Maybe you've got some dates, dated preferences. Ooh. So what's your favourite venue as a conductor? I think I have to go with my answer from last time, which is Snake Maltings. Snake Maltings is the concert hall of the Orba Festival, and it was built by Benjamin Britten, uh, or rebuilt by Benjamin Britten. Um, and it's an old malt house, Uh, which has been turned into a concert hall. It's incredibly simple. There's no ornamentation. There's no fancy gold. There's no, uh, there's nothing fancy about it at all. But it sounds incredible. It's rectangle, probably 350, 400-seater hall, uh, raked audience, a nice tall stage, red brick walls, wooden floor, and a sort of uh, conical roof. And if it's empty, so when you rehearse in there, it's so hard to play and it's over acoustic and it, too much reverberation. But when you get people in, it's got this warm glow and everyone feels close to the orchestra. The orchestra feels close to the audience. Again, you can't play too loudly because it's this really immersive sound. You feel also in there that the sound doesn't just come from the stage, but really surrounds you and uh, I mean I have a lot of emotional connection to the place because my great friend and mentor Oliver Nusson lived there he ran the festival for some years um, and then towards the end of his life he lived there when I was uh, seeing him very regularly Um, so I have a big emotional connection but I also have given some of the most memorable performances of my life it's also very flexible so you can you can take the front of the stage down and it opens out into this enormous orchestra pit. And then you can have uh, 
an opera production above. And I did a performance, a production of Debussy's Pelias in Melisande there. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. Every note sounded right and sort of went out and the hall took it and the audience were deathly silent. And the whole piece sort of had this shimmering glow. The sound was right, the momentum was right. Uh, I managed to do pretty much everything that I imagined was possible. Um, the singers felt secure on stage and supported by the orchestra. Um, maybe it didn't sound like that to anyone else, but from my position, it was really, um, the, you, without being perfect, it was the ideal performance. It was what you, what you go for, what you try and get every time you perform. So I guess that's got to be my favorite to perform. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite venue as a listener? Well, that depends on the music because different halls make different music sound better or not worse, but you have to fight for them. So, I mean, I love the Musikverein in Vienna, particularly if you're hearing late romantic, early 20th century music. It's a, it's a super acoustic, um, I used materialistic you can almost, you can hear the pores in the wood. You can hear uh, the color of the paint. I know that that's slightly a silly thing to say, but when you're there, it really affects you. And it's warm, it's beautiful. It's Again, it's quite a loud hall. So orchestras have to play a bit softer and you get real warmth from playing. It's a small stage rectangular with a, a balcony. It is very ornate, but the ornamentation comes from a sort of sense of grace. Um, although, of course, when it was built, everyone hated it, but that's another story. Um, and I suppose in that vein, the Concert House in Berlin and the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam, they're all very similar, and I really love I love to perform and listen it's in the, all of them. It's probably the third time we get Music for Line I mean, in, it's the, uh, in it's five the episodes, yeah. Um, but... If you hear a piece of contemporary music or Stravinsky in there, it's not necessarily so so helpful to the music. Um, uh, I mean, I think uh, if you were hearing sort of more contemporary music, there are uh, there are places like the Musikgebouw in Amsterdam, which is this amazing, almost floating concert hall on the on the river, uh, or I mean, the Berlin Philharmonie. Um, the Berlin Philharmonie is stunning to hear anything in, partly because it sounds great, but also partly because it's got this feeling from every seat you feel like you're almost on the stage. And it was built as a sort of 1950s socialist ideology of bringing Germany back together again. And they wanted a classless hall where you don't have the expensive seats and the cheap seats. Of You do have more expensive and cheaper seats, but they're not visually like that. And then I think the, the, the hall which I've been just blown away by was Santori Hall in Tokyo, where, I mean, the sound is, I can't describe it, it's like nothing else. It's, it's, it's almost like you sort of, you know, in, in, on a photograph if you do HDR and it makes all the colours seem more realistic. Somehow it made all of the instruments, all of the sounds seem more realistic, but mixed and um, 
combined as well, not separate. What's your favorite place to rehearse? I mean, it's always lovely to rehearse in concert halls. Um, this summer I was in Cleveland working with the Cleveland Orchestra and we rehearsed in Severance Hall, which is an astonishing, clean, clear, beautiful, reverberant hall and the orchestra sit on the flat. And they're in, I mean, they are the most wonderful orchestra in the world and I loved working with them. And rehearsing in here and you can hear everything, but it's warmed. Um, I mean, it was just a joy to make music, even in rehearsal. So even when you said, ah, can I listen to the second violins just play this little moment? We did Schmidt's Fourth Symphony, actually. Even, you know, and you just get this wonderful uh, homogeneous string sound in this beautiful hall. It's, it's almost like the hall, the hall is wooden as well, but it's almost like it's made out of tiles, uh, sort of porcelain tiles. So if you imagine a sound that's slightly shiny and but not hard ever. Um, absolutely wonderful. So, I mean, that was the most luxurious place I've ever rehearsed. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've, you've played and you've performed, well, performed more in a lot of really nice places, uh, but where would you love to perform and you've never performed in? I've never performed in the Musikverein and I would love to do a Franz Schmidt symphony there because that was Schmidt's Hall. He was the cellist of the Vienna Philharmonic. So he, you play his music and he would have been sitting just there in front of you. And I think the size of it and the warmth is exactly perfect for this music because it was written for that hall and that orchestra. There are many halls which I'd love to go to. There's a, there's a hall in Iceland, uh, which has this huge glass front. It looks extraordinary. I've never been to... Uh, there's a hall in Beijing, which looks extraordinary. If I'm honest, and I'm sorry I'm saying this on an acoustic blog, where I want to perform is the people I want to perform for and the audience. And I want to perform for people who listen. And some of the my most memorable concerts have not been in the best halls. Some of them have, but some of them have been small audiences, Uh, there was a hall in a tiny village in northern France where we went and 70 people turned up and it was three and a half hours and we did a tour around northern France and we did three and a half hours. But this was their music and they listened with such intensity and we played because that's their, that was really for them. And, you know, it's nice to play in big, fancy, shiny, beautiful sounding halls but you have to play m music for a reason. And I take a lot of pride about doing things meaningfully and having an audience that is willing to be affected and, or having a way to affect the audience is really special. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. Not it's been lovely. Thank you. Hopefully you're not too cold. <laughs> not at all. Uh, but yeah, so how can we get in touch with you if, People want to uh, reach out to you or follow you on Instagram? Well, yeah, actually, it's um, it's funny you asked that because actually this week I've just launched uh, my Instagram, which sounds awfully narcissistic. And there is a side to it, which is, um, you know, you can follow me, see where I'm performing, see what I've done recently. There's lots of great pictures of the Schmidt Project. 
little things. I've got some manuscripts of Schmidt up there and also some other hobbies of mine. And of course, you can message me there and um, I'm not fancy. It's all done by me. So I will write you back and will love to hear from anyone about any questions that come up. But also more interestingly, I've I mean, everything I do is about trying to draw people into music and to really listen to it and um, to sort of see what an extraordinary, unique thing classical orchestral music, classical opera is. And so I've started a little series of very silly little videos. They're called uh, Musical Microdosing. And they're about 20 to 40 seconds of a moment of music. And I've sort of animated them with like neon 1970s fear and loathing in Las Vegas type ideal, but to try and draw out some of the structures in the music. And there's everything from Purcell to Schmidt to Debussy, but also to Nussen and Elliot Carter and uh, some composers you will have heard of, some composers you won't have heard of. Um, and I'm trying to release a few of these every week and, um, I'd love people to sort of listen to them and maybe then go and find the piece or find the composer or go, oh, I hated that. And it's fine. And you've spent 20 seconds and seen something funny and silly and maybe found a way into a piece of music that you wouldn't have done before. Thank you very much, Jonathan, again. Thanks, Jonathan. Not at all. Thank you, See you later. And thank you for bringing me to this extraordinary place. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, don't forget to like, share and subscribe.